from Beacon Point. This is Dollars and Cents, a really great podcast about money. Co-host and certified financial planners, Kobe Cress and Karen Reifel, help listeners navigate various life moments and major life events through the lens of personal finance. Contrary to popular belief, these money conversations are not boring. Prepare to be informed and entertained. Welcome back to another episode of Dollars and Cents, a really great podcast about money. Today, we have a special Veterans Day episode for you, as I recently had the chance to sit down with the founder of Beacon Point, Garth Flint, to talk to him about his time as a naval aviator during the Vietnam War. During the episode, Garth shares a bit about the history of Beacon Point and his thoughts on Beacon Point's enormous success and where he thinks we go from here. He talks about his experience being shot down over Vietnam, and Garth will share some financial tips for veterans and some of his favorite financial resources available to all investors. I've had the privilege of knowing Garth for many years, and I can tell you that he is incredibly humble and kind. And for as long as I've known him, he has focused his life on serving others, whether it be his clients, his family, his community, or his country. And he has served always with a true generosity of spirit. It is those aspects of him and his daughter Shannon infused throughout Beacon Point's culture that make Beacon Point a special place. One last thing, to set the tone for today's episode, I'd like to read you a short excerpt from Tom Wolfe's 1975 essay, The Truest Sport, Jousting with Sam and Charlie, which profiles the experiences of Garth and John Dowd as naval aviators in Vietnam, including the time they were shot down over Haiphong in North Vietnam. I hope you enjoyed listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed my discussion with Garth. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, please send them to info at getthesense.com. All at once, Dowd sees a streak of orange shoot up over the nose on the port side. Garth Flint, in the back seat, sees another streak come up under the nose on the starboard. They both know at once, tracer bullets. They go to school with tracer bullets. The tracers show the gunners whether or not they're near the mark, and without any doubt, they're near the mark. Then they hear a sound like thwack. It sounds like nothing more than a good-sized rock hitting an automobile. The shot hit the bottom of the nose section. Dowd immediately cobs it, gives it full power in a furious bid to get up into the cloud cover and out over the gulf. Every warning light on the panel is lit up red, but he still has control of the plane. Smoke starts pouring into the cockpit. The heat is so intense, he can barely touch sections of the panel. It's so hot, he can hardly hold the controls. The fire seems to be in the hydraulic system of the wheel well. He tries to vent the cockpit, but the vent doesn't work. Then he blows the canopy off to try to clear the smoke. But the smoke pours out so heavily, he still can't see. Everything metal is becoming fiercely hot. He wonders if the ejection mechanism will still work. He can hardly hold the stick. For Garth Flint, in back, with a canopy gone, it's as if a hurricane has hit. A hurricane plus smoke. Maps are blowing all over the place, and smoke is pouring back. It's chaos. They're going about 350 knots, and the rush of air is so furious, Flint can no longer hear anything on the radio, not even from doubt. He wonders, can we possibly get back onto the carrier if the smoke is this bad and Dowd can't hear radio communications? Oddly, all his worries center on this problem. An explosion right in front of him. In the roiling smoke where Dowd used to be, there's a metal pole sticking up in the air. 
It's made of sections like a telescope. It's something Flint's never seen before, the fully sprung underpinning of an F-4 ejection system sticking up in the air as they hurtle over the Gulf of Tonkin. This spastic pull sticking up in the front seat is now his only companion in this stricken ship going 350 knots. Dowd's punched out. Flint stares at the pull for perhaps two or three seconds, then pulls the ring under his seat. He's blasted out of the ship with such force that he can't see. Garth, thanks for joining us today. So glad to have you. Great, great to be here. Well, uh, listeners just heard a little bit of an introduction uh, about who who you are from me, but so that they're not forced to take my word for it. Uh, can you give us just a brief introduction of, of who you are? Sure, sure. Uh, well, currently, uh, I'm with Beacon Point. I was the founder with my daughter in 2002. Prior to that, I found another firm name of uh, Canterbury Consulting. And going way back, I graduated from St. Mary's College, got drafted, went in the Navy, had a couple of interesting adventures there, and then joined Merrill Lynch and stayed in the financial services business pretty much all my life. You have really an incredible story, and you and Shannon, your daughter, and we'll talk more about that in this episode. I know listeners, a lot of them being Beacon Point clients, will love to know and learn a bit about the history of Beacon Point, which I think is a great uh, story. And and I think a great place to start, because you just touched on this. And this episode will air right on or right before Veterans Day, which is one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on because you were a veteran, served in Vietnam, as you mentioned, in the Navy, uh, and you had some pretty incredible adventures there that I think uh, listeners will enjoy hearing about. And there's a lot of perspective that came from that. So tell us a little bit about the Navy and your experience there. Sure. Um, it, it got started uh, back in my day. You know, The draft was there and you had to face that one way or another. So either when you turned 18 or graduated from college, you got the draft notice and I got mine. I wasn't really paying attention. All my friends were saying, get in the National Guard, get in the Coast Guard. You're going to get drafted. And I wasn't paying attention. And sure enough, got the notice to report to the Army Induction Center in Los Angeles because we lived in Santa Barbara at the time. And <clears throat> I had taken a test for the Navy. So I called the recruiter and said, got you an appointment, Officer Canada School in Rhode Island, where I went. And from there, uh, that's where you get your commission. From there, I went to Pensacola because I was I was always interested in aviation. In fact, I wanted to be a pilot, but I knew my eyes were bad, so I memorized a chart and got caught the second time and said, "Gee, <laughs> nice try. We like your passion, but we're going to send you to become a navigator." So I said, "Okay, that's second best," and uh, it turned out to be a, a wonderful experience. But the uh, what was interesting to me is I, I was always an average student. I was never a very good student, you know, season high school, season college. But in the aviation program at Pensacola, it was so interesting that I ended up in the top part of my class. And if you're at the top part of your class, you got whatever you wanted, basically your choice of airplane and location. So I applied for West Coast and applied for this F-4 squadron which I ended up in, in, in at Miramar in San Diego. And it was an, a squadron that was transitioning from an older airplane to the F-4. And full of a bunch of younger guys, age 23 to 27, all college graduates. We had some pretty amazing people. Uh, we had two kids from Yale, some from Harvard, Cal, a bunch of kids from Southern School, two, oddly enough, from St. Mary's, which was just random. 
And it, it was intellectually extremely challenging. And if you presented to the squadron, which we had to do on some aspect of the airplane or flying or something, you better bring your air game, or as they called it then, you'd get murdered. And you would. It was it, you'd get really embarrassed. So you didn't. You never wanted to get into that situation. But it, it was it, it was really fun because we were a transistor squadron. We were there for two years and just learning about the airplane and getting as much flight time as we could. One of the ways to get flight time was to take it cross country. So we did. Uh, and if, for whatever reason, I flew with a guy who had a girlfriend in Jacksonville, Florida, one weekend, get the airplane Friday, come back Sunday night. I flew with another guy to New Orleans uh, over the uh, New Year's holiday because his wife and his wife's family were there. I mean, I, I flew everywhere around the country because we could. And uh, you need it needed at times supposedly the uh bad news came when we we finally went to uh got on a carrier got on a constellation and went to the gulf of tonkin mm. and um my role was was uh i should have said this earlier but my role was like goose in top gun so i was in, in the back in the, in the back seat so we so we went over to to vietnam and flew primarily missions in north vietnam so a lot of a lot, a lot of stuff up north, and our our job as a as a in the plane as, as a fighter was to be a flak suppressor and then convert to a fighter. So we would escort the attack airplanes in, drop our bombs on the flak sites, you know, dueling the flak site, and then convert to a, a protective role for the the, the, other, the other attack planes. And and uh, it was pretty interesting. Saw a lot of interesting stuff, and then survived that. Got came back. Got really fortunate, fell in love, married a wonderful human being I've been married to for a very long period of time, and then went back out on the Coral Sea. And on uh, December 27th, 1967, uh, we were on this reconnaissance mission uh, in south of uh, Haiphong, heading east, fortunately, instead of west, when we got hit in the front of the airplane. And it's immediately caught fire and the, the, the objective was to get to the water because if you got the water you would get rescued and so we climbed up into the to get some altitude in, in case the airplane quit running and a lot of smoke in the cockpit blew the front canopy, canopy off there's no communication between uh, john dad and myself and the and our wingman's telling us you, you get out get out you got a lot of fire it's burning pretty severely and i heard this big explosion I, oh what the heck was that i looked up and front seat and John's gone. So I have no control in the back. So easy decision. Out you go. And uh, I remember coming back to the down to the clouds and looking down and seeing all these islands, which are a big part of the geography of North Vietnam, thinking, oh my gosh, we didn't get far enough south or east. So land in the water, climbed in a raft, looked behind me, and there were some people on this little island on the beach, but they didn't seem to be too concerned. I never want I never looked back because I didn't want to see a boat coming to greet me. Then maybe 20 minutes later, uh, we had these uh, rescue uh, uh, propeller, if you will, or spads, as they call them, aircraft on the squadron on, the, on our ship. And they showed up, you know, and they they orbit about, you know, a couple miles away from you. They don't want to orbit right over you because they don't want people to know where you are. And I had a, a radio. We all had radios, handheld radios, but I could transmit, but I couldn't hear. So I said, Hey, if you see two people in the water, just rock your wings. And we knew each other because we were on the same, we're in the same air wing on the same carrier. So we did a lot of things together. And pretty soon one of them dropped out. And I noticed 
he's coming right at me and he's getting lower and lower and lower. And he flew across, across me probably 25 feet above me. And I can fact, feel a little bit of the, the prop wash. Then he did a couple of rolls, waved to me and went back to the orbit with his friend. And I thought, what is that? What, what, what's he trying to do? trying to kill me so <laughs> pretty soon maybe 20 minutes later the helo comes in and and those guys were amazing because they got it was enemy territory it wasn't friendly at all and they took a big chance in a slow airplane if you will and picked us up and got back the carrier and then we're in the ready room and a couple hours later the guys from the bad squadron come down and, and i knew them right away of course and, oh hey and he said to me hey, how did how How'd you like that pass? I thought you were trying to kill me, but it was really what they were doing was that they were messaging me that everything was going to be okay. And so it was, and that was the, the, the part of it. So this story ends up in, as, as you know, in, in Tom Wolf's book, in the book of short stories. And the reason that happened is that John Dad, who I flew with, ran into Tom in, the, in a bar and they struck up a conversation. And Tom was always, uh, as you know, interested in aviation because he, write stuff and so forth so that's how that got got published and i was i was fortunate to spend a lot of time on tom with tom talking about i never met him face to face but because i was he you know east coast west coast thing and uh but spent a lot of time with him on the phone and and he was asking he was asking all the right questions it's really kind of kind of mean but he did take a story and he elaborated a little bit but it was, it was kind of interesting but we're we were uh, we were very very blessed because um, you know a lot of people didn't come back either mm -hmm. killed or POWs. We were I think two out of I think there were four of us that got back out of the 24 that mm -hmm. got shot down. So we were we were or flew in the water or something, something like that. We were very 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 blessed. For listeners out there, and, and I'll put a link to this, but the story is captured in a, a Tom Wolf story. It was in 1975, I, I believe. Garth, correct me if I'm wrong. 1975, it was published in Esquire magazine. Uh, and then yeah. it ended up in, in some of his books as well. And the story is called The Truest Sport, or the title of the story, The Truest Sport, Jousting with Sam and Charlie. And that story was actually in one of his books, Mob Gloves and Mad Men, Clutter and Vine as well. And at the beginning of the show, for those who listened, I read an excerpt from The Truest Sport. Uh, so you can hear that story a little bit in Tom's words as well. Certainly worth reading an incredible story. Garth, thanks for going through that with us. And, and tell me, that's the story of uh, some of the adventures in the Navy. What came after the Navy? Well, one of the things that that I did, I've always, I, was, I was always interested in, in finance. And I was an econ major, but I was always interested in Especially in companies that that were, um, some person or group of people had a vision and they executed that vision and companies go public and they do well and grow and that was always fascinating to me how corporate America operates. So I, I, I joined Merrill Lynch right out of the Navy. I also stayed in, uh, I stayed in a reserve squadron at at, at Miramar that, that had F F fours. This is right after Top Gun, so. It would, that was another fun part of life because all we did was dogfight or air combat maneuvers. And that was a, you know, as opposed to sitting at a desk all day and then go down and jump in an airplane, it was, it was really a, a contrast, if you will. But I, <laughs> back to your, your question, uh, I started with Merrill Lynch. Um, what I didn't agree with so much was the, you know, their, their business model and how they dealt with clients so much. It was more, 
products for the client and and you know what's best for the firm than the other way around. So mm. left got into the institutional consulting business early on uh, at Merrill Lynch and then left Merrill, went to Kidder, uh, and then we always wanted to be independent. So that's how we formed Canterbury Consulting. And then um, one of the issues there was we were the the revenue model still was tied to commissions and fees, which I thought was a little bit of a conflict. So as in two of my partners today, Felix Lynn and Doug Allison. So I had talked to Shannon, my, my daughter, about, you know, someday we should form a company because she was working with an investment manager in, in Santa Monica. And so we set up Beacon Point and then Felix and Doug and Matt joined us. And, and it, originally it was all institutional. I, I did have some Schwab accounts about over, you know, these were carryovers from Maryland Kidder days, but it was primary institution, but it's completely reversed, if you will. It's, it's as you know, it's more private client, which is, which is great. And I think that, that what we do for private clients today versus when I was, you know, in the business is just, it's, it's, it's black and white. It's night and day. It's, it's mm-hmm. truly amazing. The financial planning tools that we have, have for, cl- for clients. It's, it, it, you can do so much for more in terms of helping them achieve their objectives and, and, and goals and what they're trying to do. So really powerful tools. You know, one of my, one of my maybe most powerful tools, like you said, or maybe one of my, my favorite parts of having a discussion with a potential client is when I explain to them, you know, we don't sell any investments. We're on your side of the table, right? We're not trying to sell you a product based on a commission. Uh, we're trying to make sure that you end up in the right investments to reach your goals. And we're going to craft something to make sure that's the case. But you can rest assured sitting on the same side of the table as me or across the table from me that I'm on your side and I'm not compensated differently based on the investments that you're invested in. Uh, and that is a really, like you said, it's a really powerful, a really freeing uh, position to be in because you really feel like you could put your clients first and and they do better they are successful and that is success for you and so i do really appreciate that one of the reasons that i came to beacon point and wanted to be on this side of the business was for that exact reason yeah no that's that's absolutely right i i always feel that as an advisor with individuals and institutions for that matter because they're made up of, of individuals is that you're there to keep them out of trouble you're there to protect them I completely agree. Uh, and Beacon Point does a great job. Obviously, we're both biased, but I can say truthfully, and we've both been in the industry, you longer than me, but we've both been in the industry with other firms and uh, and, and worked for a lot of great firms. But it is a thing about Beacon Point that uh, I think we all really appreciate working here is that really is our focus. So let, let me ask you this. What is legend at Beacon Point? Uh, is, and a lot of people are familiar with Shannon, your daughter, because uh, she currently serves uh, as CEO of Beacon. She's often featured on the cover of magazines. She's done amazing uh, things. Talk to us a little bit about a project she did in college that led to Beacon Point. Yes, she did. She at UCLA uh, Anderson. She did. She did a project on on the consulting business. Basically, it was more I think more institutionally oriented at the time. But it, you know, we we navigated over to the private side client pretty easily. And I think that's that's helpful. That that model, that institutional model, uh, did really well in transferring or migrating it over to the private client side of business. You know, institutions uh, hold you not that individuals don't, but they hold you some pretty rigorous standard standards. So to be able to take that thought process, that model, that implementation to private clients, I think really benefits private 
private clients a lot. And we continue to, to manage institutional money. That's, that's, as you know, that's part of our, our business. And that's my soul of putting that paper together sort of solidified our thoughts. Uh, and that's why and how we found it Beacon, Beacon Point. Garth, you talked about the private client side of the business. And, and you know, when I think about the private client, what we mean there is individuals, right? Private individuals or families uh, that were uh, doing financial planning for investment management, all of those things. One group of individuals that we're really talking about today is veterans. So from your perspective, as a veteran and working in this industry for a, a long time, what do you see as kind of the greatest financial issue or topic uh, for veterans? Either, either a concern maybe you have, um, or, or uh, you know, it could be on the other side, well, a, a positive development. I, I think if, if uh, someone identifies as a veteran, it might be beneficial for some to veterans to find a... Uh, a veteran advisor, they, they may be more comfortable with that environment simply because the, of this whole notion, and it's absolutely true of brotherhood or commonality, it may make them more, more comfortable. In terms of how they should invest, it's the same that we, we talk to individual investors about. It's just develop a plan and stay with that plan, no matter what the market environment is. And, and I would also tell a veteran that, you know, Use the discipline that you learned in the military and transport it over to investing. In other words, you know, th this whole notion of setting aside a little bit every month ends up in the, that term, you know, we call dollar cost averaging. That's one of the <laughs> an amazing concept because what happens, of course, is if you stick with it, and that's the key in negative environments, you're, you know, things are on sale. So you're buying more shares or whatever. And that discipline over time is just, it's almost magical. But that's the key is to have that discipline and stay with it. You know, it's kind of interesting. And I'm, I don't know where I heard this, but somebody said, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating about individuals. They all want to take on more risk when markets are going up and less when it's going down, which should be just the opposite. Mm. So if you stay with that monthly commitment or whatever it is, no matter what the amount is, it'll, it'll work wonders for you over, over longer periods of time. And the earlier you get started, of course, you know this, the, the better. But So that's what I would tell veterans. And there's no magic about being a veteran advisor. Some, as I say, some veterans may be more comfortable with that. But for the most part, you know, develop a discipline, a strategy, and, and, and don't change it. Mm. I've heard it said. I think it was probably Nick Murray. I like I like the work of yeah. Nick Murray quite a bit, uh, and I, I will recommend here in a minute one of his books for anybody out there listening. Uh, I've probably recommended it on a previous episode if I'm remembering correctly, but I think in one of his letters I read years ago uh, that he explains one of the weird things about investing is that, and you described this, right? People are always want to take on more risk when things are going up and less risk when things are going down, and it should be the opposite in so many ways. It It is the only area where you're out shopping for some something, and if somebody ran in into the middle of a store and yelled, everything is on sale, in any other environment, you would rush around and scoop up everything you can. And in the stock market, you turn and run for the door. It'd be like being in Best Buy and somebody said, everything is 40% off. And you just turned and sprinted out the front door. And I feel like investing, it's hard to get that psychology piece across for folks. That seems to always be the way of it with investing. Yeah, no, that's, that's really well said. That's exactly, exactly right. That, you know, human behavior in it. Yeah, you know, that's. I don't know what it is. People feel worse about losses than they 
do about gains, and I don't know how to describe that, but that's been the been the problem. And and then we see it on the institutional side as well. I mean, people want to do things in in negative mar- markets that they shouldn't, you know, or change things up because the portfolio's down and we're not meeting our goals. But write it out, you know, it's just stay with it. Yeah, you you hit the nail on the head, right? Have a plan, stick with it. Uh, the I remember in March 2020, and I use this phrase a lot, and I I'm, I didn't come up with it. I stole it from somebody, but I would end a lot of emails or a lot of conversations uh, in difficult times with "Be of good cheer, this too shall pass." And I yeah. feel like that is the mentality. It, look for opportunities, certainly, but also this will pass, right? Uh, have confidence in your plan. Stick to it. You'll be glad you did. And anybody that stuck with their plan, as you well know, uh, in March 2020, the most recent kind of dire example, February, March 2020, from a market pullback standpoint, they were very glad they did in June 2020, right? Because there were all these arguments about would it be a W-shaped recovery or, an, or uh, you know, a V-shaped recovery? Well, whatever it was, it recovered very quickly. And anybody yeah that didn't stick to their plan really regretted it. So I don't think there's any better advice in finance than create a plan and stick to it. And find an advisor, to your point, uh, find an advisor that you trust so that when you're having that day where you don't want to stick to the plan, you will call them and you will trust. It's like your doctor, right? You want to find a doctor you trust when things are not going well. It's the same thing with your advisor. Uh, Certainly, you want to find somebody that you trust when things are going bad. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let me ask you this. Uh, for any veterans out there, or really just any uh, any investors out there, is there any books, any resources that you recommend for folks? I mean, I don't know of any. There are a bunch of books, obviously, Raymond Dodd and all that, and that's that. That's a good, you know, the good basics. I, I like reading anything that Warren Buffett's published, like his annual meeting notes. That that's good. But day to day, I stick with the Wall Street Journal. It just keeps me current. It's, Tends not to be biased. It's more reporting than 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 uh, anything else, and 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 I, I I read that. There are managers, uh, and not a lot of them. God bless them. But there are managers that that produce pretty good reports. Uh, Brian Westbury from First Provident, I think it's First Trust, not First, First Trust. Yep, yep, is very good. Uh, not every every time that he writes something, it's some of it's pretty mundane. It's about you know, different indicators that are up or down, but uh, it, he's he's got a pretty good picture of of, of the environment. And, and I think probably the best, and everybody knows this, is Howard Marks from mm-hmm. Oak Tree. Writes a good piece. It's long, but it's very, very, very thoughtful. And then there's some others around. You know, uh, a technical newsletter, and I, I'm not a big chartist, but I like the perspective is in best tech out of... Um, they're up in um, in Montana, Whitefish, Montana. It's it's uh, comes out every couple of weeks. And, I mean, these are that you have to subscribe to that. The the Howard Marks is pretty much available, in, as is Westbury's. You don't have to subscribe to those. But for listeners out there, we will put in the show notes a link to subscribe to both Howard Marks's Oak. Uh, is it Oak Tree? Uh, I want to say Oak Tree, right? Yeah, yeah. Oak Tree. Uh, his new letter. He puts out a newsletter about once or twice a year. It's not overly uh, frequent, but it's excellent when it comes out. And actually, last year during a lot of the volatility, he put out something like four newsletters in four <laughs> months. It was really incredible, <laughs> uh, and you could barely keep up because he's so intelligent and his writing is so great that you, you you'd get done with one, you'd digest it, and all of a sudden another one would pop yeah. in your inbox. You were glad to see it, but it was a little overwhelming. 
Brian. But then Brian Westbury writes uh, for First Trust Portfolios. He's an economist over there. Uh, he's absolutely excellent. And he writes a Monday morning outlook every Monday. Uh, you can sign up and it comes in. And I, I'll, I'm sure you feel this way, Garth. I look forward to it every week. Uh, and I get I gain a lot of great economic insight. And then Howard Marks also has uh, a couple books, but uh, I've read mm-hmm. one of his books. Um, actually, I've read two, but the one I would recommend for any just kind of investor out there that wants a good foundation is a book called The Most Important Thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the subtitle uh, is Uncommon Sense for uh, the Thoughtful Investor. So it's an excellent book, real basic, uh, but still very insightful to read. So those are three great resources. And we will put all of those in the show notes. So feel free to jump on there uh, and sign up for those newsletters and certainly look for Howard Marks's book. And I will add uh, one book to the pile. Uh, it's a book that I give to a lot of new clients when they come on board, uh, which is Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth by Nick Murray. And I have mentioned that on the podcast. It's a little hard to get your hands on a copy. You can find them. You have to buy them from Nick Murray directly. But it, there is, in my opinion, no better foundational investor book for somebody just starting out. So that would be my other uh, recommendation there. So Garth, we uh, we talked a little bit about Beacon Point, and it's amazing how far it's come in nearly 20 years. Uh, founded in 2002 as kind of a, a starting point, obviously a lot of work done before then. Uh, and now here we are coming into 2022, uh, which has to be just staggering, uh, I'm sure, to look back on. But where do you feel like two things? Uh, what are you most proud of about Beacon Point over the last 20 years? And, and where do we go from here? Well, I'm, I'm I'm really proud of the team that we have, the people we have working for us. That's then that's the key to anything, any successful business, the people that you have. And we've always had Shannon and I have always had this attitude of, you know, if somebody has an idea, let them run with it. You know, and there we, we want entrepreneurial spirit. And so that's mm-hmm. that's what's uh, driven the private client acquisition uh, situation that we've that we've executed on. So that, that's been one of the I think one of the under underlining uh, thoughts and, and and disciplines, if you will, you know, from here on, I would expect us to continue growing. Uh, me personally, I'm focusing a lot more now on insurance company assets. Uh, it's uh, it's actually like starting all over because we're not known as an investment consultant in that arena, but it's. Um, it's an opportunity for us because we have the resources at Beacon Point to certainly support that. So I I think we have a, a terrific future going, going forward. As I say, it's really based on the people. And I haven't um, been to all the offices and met everybody, but plan to do that over the next year or two once we can get back to flying on a dependable basis. It is amazing. And I've been with Beacon Point since 2016. And when I came on board, I think Scottsdale may have been the only satellite office other than the second Newport office. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe that was the case. And five years. So, you know, Beacon Point's been around 20 years, say. And the last five years, we've added, I I don't even know the number at this point, 20, 20 new offices and 200 team members. It's something just staggering. And we continue to grow and grow in the right ways. Uh, we just had uh, a firm come on here uh, locally and getting to meet that team. You think, 
well, these are Beacon Point people. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, they just fit right in. And you and I talked about that quite a bit uh, at the start of the show before we started recording and just the good people here uh, and how much we enjoy them and how much of a family it is, even as we continue to grow, which is an amazing thing. So, and you answer this question, I was going to ask, you know, that's what's next for, for Beacon Point. What's next for Garth Flint? Uh, and you kind of answered that. It sounds like you're not one to sit idle. I know that about you. So you've taken on a whole new challenge in the insurance side. Yeah, well, you know, Kobe, the business, and you'll find out if you ever already found out, it gets in your DNA, and is, and for me, I, I, I'm, I don't play golf, but I admire people that play golf, <laughs> and, and I don't fish, so I, you know, this is this is fun. It's really enjoyable. It's a challenge, definitely a challenge, but fun, and it keeps you stimulated intellectually, and, and so I, I really great people. I mean, you know, on the institutional side of the business, really interesting. You get to meet great people on both sides of the table whether it's investment managers or the investment committee. So it's enjoyable from that perspective. I, I agree. It does kind of get in your DNA and the people are the best part. Uh, clients that I work with, you know, you think, I, I hope I get to work with you for the rest of our lives, right? Yeah. These are people yeah. that I never want to give up. I had a call yesterday morning with with two of them uh, and they were sending me, you know, a contact information from somebody that planned their family's trip to Disney World because they just wanted me and my family to go to Disney World because they had so much fun. They sent me photos of it, right? These are like the things you yeah. get to be a, a part of. You get to know people and be a big, such an enormous part of their lives. I, and I know you and I both value that and, and Beacon Point values that. So Guard, this has been this has been wonderful. Exactly what I was hoping the conversation would be. Let me ask you this: This podcast goes out to thousands of people directly, whether it's clients, potential clients, uh, centers of influence that we work with, uh, just folks that have signed up to listen to the podcast as it comes out. Anything you want to say to everybody out there? Well, just thank everybody, and and I thank you, Kobe, for putting this together. It was interesting, and and I like how you, I like the way you've you've crafted it, and look forward to hearing it. Well, uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Any of the resources we've talked about will be in the show notes. And if you have uh, questions, comments, something you'd like to know about the show, about Beacon Point, about Garth, send anything to info at getthesense.com. That's info at getthesense.com. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Hope you've enjoyed this episode with Garth. And until we speak to you again soon, take care. Thanks for listening. Find us on social media at Get The Sense and online at beaconpoint.com. That's point with an E. Be sure to check back regularly for new episodes. Until next time, keep your dollars and we'll keep our sense.